sentire media. I apologize. I'm recycling an old episode for the 25th of April, Liberation Day, which we celebrate as a holiday in Italy. The values are still current and important and perhaps even more essential in this period. So I think I can get away with giving you the 2020 version. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A History of Italy. Special Episode 7, Liberation. Seventy-five years ago on this day, the Comitato di Liberazione Nazionale, the Italian war government collaborating with the Allies, officially launched the insurrection of the Italian people against the fascist and Nazi oppressors. It was also the day in which Milan and Turin were liberated, while Bologna had been free since the 21st and Genoa since the 23rd of April. The fascist leader, Benito Mussolini, by now a puppet of the Nazi regime, would be found and killed three days later. His corpse then hung upside down in Piazzale Loreto in Milan. The war for the Italians was over. After the war, everyone would have a story of those last fateful days. Just like everyone alive on the 11th of September 2001 or on the day of the Kennedy assassination remembers exactly what they were doing when they heard the news. For my uncle, for example, it was the certainty that his mother, my grandmother, had lied to him about the war being over. You see, the first allies to enter their little town at the foot of the Emilia Apennines were the soldiers of the Forza Expedicionaria Brasileira, the Brazilian Expeditionary Force. As they marched into the town, they apparently celebrated, well, like Brazilians. The ruckus sent my uncle fleeing to hide and accusing his mother of having lied about the end of the war. After all, the poor kid was by now used to running for cover as the droning engines of the Allied bombers approached. Instead, what made a greater impression on my grandmother was her last meeting with the retreating German soldiers. Her family had an osteria, an inn, and my grandmother worked in the kitchen. I know what you're thinking now. Mike, you had a grandmother that was Italian and had a restaurant. Yes, you have reason to envy me. The soldiers in question were not the ones that you see in films that come in shouting, pointing rifles and threatening. At least, not on this occasion. They quietly asked for some food, which my nonna gave them. Upon seeing that she was very much afraid, they said, Signora, non si preoccupi, noi siamo caput. Do not worry, ma'am, we are done for. At the same time, on the English side of the family, artillerymen William Russell Smith was making his way up on the east with the 8th Army, the Desert Rats, who had also fought at the battles of El Alamein and Monte Cassino. 
He did not like to talk about the war, but my cousin and I did love to hear the gruesome story of how, after being hit by shrapnel, his leg had been saved from gangrene because the maggots had eaten it off of him. Grandpa Bill died in 1986, a small family tragedy in the year of Challenger and Chernobyl. My cousin has tried to trace some of his movements during the war, but it's hard to trace a man in the British Army named Bill Smith. The topic of the British involvement in Italy brings me to one of my favourite stories about the period leading up to the liberation. The liberation and the resistance in general would deserve a lot more attention and perhaps even a whole podcast series or two and believe me, dear listeners, it is one of the ideas on the drawing board. However, current effort is being put into a collaboration with my daughter on her idea for a podcast, but that's a secret for now. The story goes back a month before the liberation, with the Germans still holding back the Allies along the Gothic line, which followed more or less the northern part of the Apennines. One of the main command centres of the Nazis was in a small town called Bottege, in a villa that had been requisitioned by the army. They had maps, intelligence and communications there. Obviously, this was a prime target for the Allies and the Partigiani, the partisan freedom fighters in the area. They were operating in the mountains with men and support from the British SAS under the command of Major Roy Alexander Farron. The attack on the command centre was to include a combination of British SAS soldiers, the Italian local partisans and some Russian partisans. Among the various aspects to consider, there was the potential consequences on the local population. You see, the Nazis and fascists had a nasty habit of killing 10 partisans for every German or fascist killed, and if enough partisans weren't found, then civilians would do just fine. Therefore, the attack on the command centre could have created an excuse for yet another civilian massacre. Something was needed to make the Germans think that the attack was the arrival of the front line of the Allied assault, which was expected any day now, and not an attack of local partisans. So it was that towards the end of March 1945, a Scotsman, David Mad Piper Kirkpatrick, was parachuted into the mountains south of the province of Regimilia. You might be wondering if this is the point of the film in which we discover he is some sort of Rambo-style weapons specialist or some sort of Van Damme-style ninja that would go in and take out the whole German contingent on his own. Well, as his nickname Mad Piper suggested, Kirkpatrick's specialty was playing the bagpipes. Preparations for the attack continued aided by the communication provided by the incredibly brave staffette, the runners, you could say. These were young women, often no more than girls, who would ride bicycles or even walk for miles and miles a day to take messages back and forth 
often encountering enemy soldiers. For the night of the 27th of March, everything was ready. The men who were to be involved in the operation had made their way down out of the mountains and were hiding out in the woods near the villa that housed the German command. As darkness fell, so did the quiet over the little village of Bottega. The silence was broken not by gunfire, not by shouted orders, but by the sound of bagpipes in the darkness. Then, as they say, all hell broke loose. Despite the fact there were some losses, the attack was a great success. A lot of important material was taken from the command centre and what could not be taken was destroyed. The German officers and soldiers there were forced to retreat back to the city of Regimilia. One month later, Regimilia would be liberated. David Kirkpatrick was discovered relatively recently in 2010 by a local journalist, Matteo Incerti, who brought him to Regimilia and he was awarded honorary citizenship. Unfortunately, this year, we cannot celebrate our liberation on Saturday the 25th as we usually do. We are waiting for a new sort of liberation, not from an oppressive political regime or foreign invader, but from a virus. If all goes well, our new partial Phase 2 liberation will be on the 4th of May. The numbers are slowly descending. Obviously, it will be a partial liberation, and if we need to do more, we'll resist. It's pretty easy to resist in a warm house with plenty of food and Wi-Fi and not foraging up in the cold mountains under threat of a Nazi sweep. One of our favourite ways to celebrate the 25th in the past has been to go to the Cervi Museum for the festival of the anti-fascist pasta. Of course, it's very Italian to celebrate everything with food. The museum in question was created from the old farmhouse of the Cervi family. These were seven brothers from a small village just outside of the city of Regimilia who had been involved in resistance activity even before the start of the war. I remember talking to one of the daughters of these brothers. She told me of how one day the maestra, the school teacher, had sent her home saying that she could not come to school without the card of the fascist party. Her father sent her straight back to school, telling her, if the maestra has anything to say about it, tell her to talk to me. The activity of the Cervi increased in September 1943 after the first fall of the fascist regime, but their activity did not last long. As they were all captured, the seven brothers and the father, Alcide, in November of that same year. They stayed in prison until the 28th of December. The night before, a fascist official had been killed in a nearby village. In retaliation, all seven brothers and a deserter were killed by a firing squad. Father Alcide Cervi remained unaware of this, and when an Allied bomb destroyed part of the prison, he managed to escape and make it home. His wife, Genoveffa Cocconi, and the daughters-in-law knew about the fate of his sons, but since he was in ill health, waited for him to get better before giving him the news. 
the poor mother, unsurprisingly, died the year after her seven sons. Alcida Cervi went on to be celebrated and didn't die until 1970. In the early 2000s, he was even celebrated by Silvio Berlusconi, who expressed the desire to meet him. Obviously, at that time, it was no longer possible. As well as events such as the anti-fascist pasta at the Cervi Museum, there are other activities, also on an official political level, with ceremonies and commemorations. Although some recent leaders, such as the aforementioned Silvio Berlusconi, have been criticised for not always attending said festivities. If there is perhaps a symbol of the 25th of April, Liberation Day, above all others, it is the song Bella Ciao, made famous worldwide recently by the Spanish show La Casa de Papel, Money Heist. Among the many touching episodes we have seen recently during the COVID-19 crisis, such as Captain Tom's 100 laps around his garden, was the British Firefighters Union doing their rendition of Bella Ciao in honour of the Italian firefighters and all those worldwide affected in this period. However, the song can be perceived as being quite divisive, as can the resistance in general. Some point to the fact that the political left have attempted to monopolise the Italian resistance and refuse to admit any of the crimes that were committed by the partisans during and especially after the war, of which there were indeed. Despite this fact, the song does remain as an important hymn to democratic values against oppression. I have a wonderful image of a group of brave old ladies singing it at the top of their lungs in a recent public meeting of Forza Nuova, an Italian neo-fascist movement. The song itself, the lyrics, aren't overtly political. Perhaps a bit sexist. Indeed, the title means Goodbye Beautiful in the feminine, ignoring the great contribution of women to the resistance and liberation. But I suppose it was the 1940s. We can't expect much more. The gist of the lyrics is as follows, each verse first followed by what you could call the chorus, or bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. One morning I awoke to find the invader. O oh, partisan, take me away, for I feel I will die. And if I die as a partisan, you must bury me. Bury me up there in the mountains, under the shade of a beautiful flower. And the people who pass by will say, what a beautiful flower. This is the flower of the partisan who died for liberty.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.